0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome one and all to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. Yes, you heard me right. This is the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, formerly known as the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. Same podcast, same host, um, fantastic guests, just more space so that we can include um, 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 studies on um, Jainism, Sikhism, Islam in India, for example. Um, so it's official. We're now the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, and I have the double delight of speaking today with the co editors of the Rutledge Handbook of Hindu Christian Relations, brand new right off the presses. Um, and these co editors are um, one you'll recognize, Chad Bauman, uh, who was just on to talk about his fascinating book, and Michelle Voss Roberts. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, who will tell us how this project arose?
0: We, about four years ago at the American Academy of Religion, we got contacted by an editor at Routledge who told us that they were putting together a series of handbooks on various topics, not just religion. Um, And they already had one in process, the handbook of uh, Muslim-Christian relations, and they were looking to to produce one on Hindu-Christian relations. And uh, very quickly, I responded uh, positively. I thought it was a great idea, but I told them also immediately, there was no way I could do it myself because the field was large and broad. And so uh, Michelle and I had worked together in the leadership of the Society for Hindu-Christian Studies and we knew we worked well together in that context. Uh, We also complemented each other well in terms of our particular disciplines and fields and uh, together we reflected the field relatively well and so we decided to do the work together and Routledge was very pleased with that and uh, they gave us the go-ahead.
1: So tell us a little bit about that complementarity between the both of you and your respective expertise. Because, um, of course, that'll, that'll, that'll be related to how the book is divided, won't it?
2: Yes. So Chad's expertise and my expertise fall within the sort of disciplinary division that the Society for Hindu Christian Studies has started to follow. Initially, the Society uh, had a predominance of textual, philosophical, and theological panels. And over the course of the decades, it grew to be roughly balanced out with more historical, anthropological, and ethnographic types of approaches. So now the society has uh, typically on its program each year, a balance of both of those things. And we also have a book award, which alternates between those two broad subdivisions. So Chad's work, as I'm sure he'll talk about, is, um, is on the historical and ethnographic side. And I am a comparative theologian. So I work on the comparative and uh, the theological and the philosophical side. This, this has set, it up, set us up really well for this volume because through the Society for Hindu Christian Studies, we've been networked with people from all of those interdisciplinary connections to Hindu-Christian relations. And also as well, we're connected with the Journal of Hindu Christian Studies, um, which if you collected together all of the issues of that journal, from, um, starting in 1988, uh, you would have kind of a much bigger version of this handbook. Um, it, the, the handbook, though, is on Hindu-Christian relations, which allowed us to be even more broad and interdisciplinary. Uh, this isn't just about the, uh, the particular study or, you know, uh, we're not just focused on the academic study of just these two things, but rather the relationship between these groups broadly construed, and we'll talk about those definitions, I'm sure, um, so that we can have uh, historical and contextual and popular and all kinds of different investigations of Hindu-Christian relations.
1: Really, this is part of a broader theme on the podcast currently. We recently had a podcast, of course, Chad with his work on uh, anti-Christian violence in India. A couple podcasts. Before that, we had uh, Gopal Gupta. He was writing on Maya and the Bhagavata Purana, but he, I believe, is the editor of the Journal of uh, Hindu-Christian Relations, uh, or the Hindu-Christian Society, I believe. Hindu-Christian Studies. Studies. Right. More coffee. Saturday morning. Here we go. (laughs) Um, 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 And we will be having... um, uh, Frank Clooney coming on shortly to talk about his reading the Hindu and Christian classics. So really uh, interesting um, thread, one of many, uh, I hope will emerge as part of the tapestry of this this new and broader, all-encompassing, more-encompassing um, Indian Religions podcast. Uh, who wants to tell uh, the audience how the book is organized? And by the way, there is such a rich rich array of contributions. It's mind-numbing. Comment also perhaps on on how many contributions there are when you tell us about the organization.
2: Sure, we have 38 chapters plus an introduction that is co-authored by Chad and myself and two responses to the volume by senior scholars in the field, Francis X. Clooney and Vasudha Narayana. And um, the two of them were actually the first and second presidents of our society, they bring uh, that that sort of historical perspective to reflect back not only on our volume, but uh, the field as a whole and some moments that Chad and I um, would not remember. So the 38 chapters are broken up into six sections. The first is on theoretical and methodological considerations. The second on historical interactions, which spans a good 2,000 years. The third is on contemporary exchanges on topics such as conversion, caste, the diaspora. The fourth section is on sites of bodily and material interactions like rituals and so forth. The the fifth section is on significant figures for Hindu-Christian engagement. And here we could have gone in so many directions. So it's just a sampling of figures like Ramahan Roy, Swami Vivekananda, Mohandas Gandhi, Raymond Panikkar, and Abhishek Dananda. But there are other significant figures who appear in the chapters across the volume. And then the sixth section is on comparative theologies.
1: Probably uh, equally vast is this question. Um, Who's this for? Who might be interested in this volume? I think there's a lot of potential audiences
0: here and Michelle already alluded to the interdisciplinary nature of the volume, which reflects the interdisciplinary nature of the society. And it really is, a, a, a fa- there really is a fascinating degree of interdisciplinarity within the society. You know, just to take one example, very often in academia, you have trouble bringing together scholars that do somewhat more constructive work, say in theology. Uh, with scholars who do ethnography or history or descriptive work. Um, there's uh, also often kind of etic and emic divides among scholars, and there's often a, a kind of suspicion across those divides. But one of the really wonderful things about the Society for Hindu Christian Studies, and it's reflected in this volume, is that a lot of those divides are not only bridged by the society and the volume, but also shown to be far blurrier than we might really think they are. And so one of the things I'm really proud about is is how broad uh, these essays are. So we have uh, people doing ethnography, history, theology, philosophy, and a lot of things sort of around the edges of, of those disciplines, as well as a good deal of criticism of the way things have been done in the past. So I think it's a really productive volume in that sense. Because of the interdisciplinary nature of the volume, I think we've got a lot of different audiences. We obviously have the audience of the South Asian religions uh, kinds of researchers. And within that, obviously the more narrow range of scholars who focus uh, intensively on Hindu-Christian relations. But I think we also have a potential audience in those who study the history of South Asia, um, the, the peoples of South Asia, the politics of South Asia, uh, the philosophies of South Asia and, and of course there's a, a scholarly uh, a scholarly audience there there's also the audience of people who engage in some way in interaction either informally or, or in more formal ways with uh, from one particular religious perspective with a person from the other religious perspective and um, the Society for Hindu Christian studies as Michelle's already Kind of mentioned, start a little bit more on the dialogue side of things, the dialogue and kind of comparative theology side of things, and has really grown into this broader field. But there are still people who are interested in this topic from that dialogue perspective. They want to know uh, what kinds of interactions of Hindus and Christians have had, and which have been productive and which have not been productive. Uh, there's potentially even a, a kind of uh, a potentially missionary crowd here, um, people trying to reach the other side, communicate with the other side, who might want to know a little bit more about how these interactions have gone in the past, how to avoid pitfalls in the uh, interreligious interactions that have happened in the past, et cetera. So there's I think there's a pretty broad audience. I'm not sure if I've described it absolutely fully. Uh, but you know it, there is a broad audience here. Um, and I think for the most part, there are people who are interested in these two religions. But there are also, there's also potentially interest from people who study say Buddhist Christian relations or Muslim Hindu relations, uh, because there is some potential for cross fertilization among the people who do work in these fields.
2: And I would add that the level of the essays is pitched such that they are overviews of the state of the field. So scholars in the field can use the volume to broaden their understanding of the field because it is quite a broad volume. But then also if folks are looking to do some more advanced research on specific subjects, they can get a sense of the state of the field on that topic and then a a useful bibliography by consulting these chapters. And we also hope that professors will take a look and consider these essays as something to assign in their undergraduate courses, because they are overviews.
1: Yeah, the, for example, some of the titles that are just succinct and and and, and fascinating um, include Hindu Jesuit encounters, you know, Hindu Protestant encounters, um, Hindu Christian debates in the 18th and 19th centuries. Right, very um, encyclopedic in the branding, and it's it's quite useful to have that resource. Uh, for me particularly for teaching, right, Um, but uh, it must have been quite a journey, uh, editing, co-editing this volume, and um, I'm not sure quite how to phrase this, but what what was that like, or were there aspects of the project that really struck you, or certain data, or certain, you know, without leading the question, could you comment a bit about what it was like putting this together, and what stood out in your minds?
2: Well, it was really wonderful working with Chad on this project. In fact, we're starting up uh, another collaboration uh, related to this one. Uh, Chad and I have similar um, work ethics and styles around editing. Uh, We found it really lovely to kind of uh, check in with each other and trade off on when it's time to check in with our authors and some of our most interesting conversations were around recruiting people to contribute to the volume because we are very sensitive to the um, the potential gaps that would be here we're very aware that we do our work in the Western Academy in a, uh, a context which has been characterized by a hegemony of Christian voices and although not um, there are many uh, voices in our volume that are not Christian, Um, we are shaped by the Western Academy and those kinds of of patterns of thinking. So we really were concerned to reach out to scholars from other contexts, scholars from India. Um, And one of the things that we discovered is that those folks are high in demand. And um, So while we were able to include scholars from India, Europe, the UK, New Zealand, Australia, as well as the US and Canada, um, at other points, we wanted to be really careful to to think about whose voices and perspectives may not be coming through and to make sure that there were some essays that, to, to the best of our ability, would fairly represent those perspectives. With 38 uh, and and counting um, chapters, uh, it's still impossible to to include everything that we wanted to include. And um, and so this we see as a a starting point. So we hope people will be in dialogue, that that we hope that that we'll get some reviews from various contexts so that we can continue the conversation.
0: I would add a few things to that as well. I think, you know, again, I would echo what Michelle just said about our working relationship. It's absolutely It has been absolutely wonderful to work with Michelle for all the reasons that she described. We really work in similar ways. Uh, when I'm busy, it seems like she's not. When she's busy, it seems like I'm not. And uh, we both really uh, trusted each other just to do the work and, um, you know, without scrutinizing what other, what each other had done. So, you, you know, when somebody did something, you just felt really wonderful that the other person had done it and, and that it was getting done. And, and it worked out really well. And I think we also need to really thank our authors. You know, we had 38, 39 people involved in this project other than us. There's a lot of potential in that number for delays in a project like this. And we turned this manuscript in one month later than we had promised it in the middle of a pandemic and that's not really something that was completely under our control. Obviously, that's that was possible, you know, largely because our authors did what they said they were going to do. They did great work on the first rounds. We didn't have to edit things that much, and they did things on time, uh, you know, almost universally. And it's just a, that's a very unusual situation in these volumes. They're always delayed, even when you only have ten authors. So I'm I'm really proud of this collective effort because of the way that so many people worked so well and so conscientiously on on the project. And I also agree with Michelle, that uh, it's tough to leave stuff out, both to leave topics out um, and to get to the end of sort of putting all of the chapters together and having an outline and realizing you've got a really good friend who writes on really interesting stuff who you couldn't find a way to fit into the bio or you have a really top-notch scholar who writes uh, on really interesting topics who you couldn't, you know, fit into the volume. And those are some painful moments um, and some painful choices for sure.
2: For sure. And I'll echo my appreciation for the contributors. One of the things I loved about this project is that when we would send updates, it was like we were all cheering each other on, and we would get these threads of congratulations and It was uh, during the pandemic, it really felt like we were checking in with each other, our colleagues that we weren't able to see at our regular conferences. We were having scholarly conversations and also some side conversations about how we were doing during the pandemic. It was really a, a good project for us during this time.
1: You know, I was really chuckling to myself um, on a number of friends as I heard you speak. Uh, clearly, the stars have aligned uh, to produce this, but more practically speaking or mundanely speaking. Um, um, I ended up uh, working with a scholar by the name of McComas Taylor. He's an Australian National University. And we co-edited uh, just conference proceedings together for World um, Sanskrit Conference. And there was just such a je ne sais quoi with the synergy of for whatever bizarre reason, like as you say, when when, when I couldn't respond, uh, he took care of it and vice versa. And our time zones are so different. And nevertheless, we found this sense of immediacy in our inboxes that we couldn't even do with people in the same uh, postal code. And uh, <laughs> so I approached him and said, look, we've got to harness this. I'll take care of most of the monkey work. Um, 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 and we're now putting together a volume on Sanskrit narrative, um, which hopefully will be out. Um, uh, who knows when, by the end of next year, we hope. But uh, I really resonate with what you were saying in terms of um, just having that that flow with certain collaboration partners. And then um, you notice it because also often academics are quite busy. There are various different stripes. They have all kinds of demands in their time and it doesn't always flow, right? And so that's fantastic that you're able to Join forces and, and I chuckle because now I understand completely why you're like, let's do this again because <laughs> this shouldn't have been this easy and let's, let's not make it hard by working with other people. Um, <laughs> but uh, why don't you tell us, uh, uh, there's just so much here and I don't wanna highlight certain papers and then leave others out. So what we'll do is why don't you each tell us about your contributions. And then after that, I would love maybe a great way would be to, to share the responses. Talk about the responses. I think that'd be a great way to, 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 to um, dive into some of the, the concepts and data uh, with, uh, without running the risk of excluding any of the fantastic papers that are in here.
2: Sure. I'll talk a little bit about my contribution. My chapter is the first in the section on comparative theologies. And it's broadly titled A Theology of Hindu Christian Relations. I had the advantage of having read the other essays as I was preparing my own. So I was able to weave some of those themes, but then also reflect on a more meta level about the distinctive possibilities that happen theologically when these two broad traditions are in conversation with one another, which of course they have been for. A, a very long time, um, as far back as you know the Thomas Christians um, in Kerala um, claim to have begun around fifty two uh, of the common Era, right so that that's a very long time that these these traditions have been in in contact with one another. and um, so I emphasize in my essay, Uh, three shared theological dynamics that seem to occur when Hindus and Christians um, speak to one another theologically. One is the role of language. That language is inadequate to capture or describe ultimate reality, but also that language is necessary, right? So there's this, sometimes um, there's a theme within Hindu Christian dialogue about how doctrine, how language constrains us and uh, getting beyond that uh, to the more apophatic or wordless or contemplative dimensions um, are, are, are can be very fruitful. So, so that's one of the dynamic between um, the inadequacy and the necessity of language. The second dynamic that I Talk about is that between the one and the many. And that's actually uh, such an important theological dynamic that um, Anant uh Rambashan in our volume dedicates his essay as a Hindu theologian to that dynamic within the Advaita Vedanta tradition. Um, so the the reality of the world of multiplicity, um, and then also the uh the Thrust towards making sense of it all, and towards perhaps a sense of ontological oneness of the divine or the divine and creation. So, and of course, within Hindu and Christian uh, theological traditions, there are a variety of approaches to uh, uh, non-dualism or qualified non-dualism or a strong distinction between the uh, creator and the creation. So that's that's an important locus of theological conversation between these two traditions. Um, and then the third dynamic that I identify is that be, uh, it's the role of narrative, right? Um, it's a kind of uh, way of telling stories about particular ways that the divine is present in the world. So you get a lot of stories. You, you have Gospels, you have stories of you know, the, the, the people of Israel and, and Christian scripture. And then, of course, in the Hindu traditions, so many. and other epic narratives. So uh, what is it, what happens when we tell stories about how the divine is present and stories about a whole lot of other things in relation to that. And, and there, again, there's, there's a, there's real particularity in the kinds of in the stories that are told, but then there's also sometimes themes that emerge across them. So those are three dynamics that I talk about as, as being made possible between these two traditions. And the essay also makes a kind of intervention in the volume. Some of the essays do make the suggestion or, or note that historically um, doctrine or we'll just name Christian treatments of truth as a place that can be exclusive and draw sharp distinctions and divisions. But if we go to the mystical, if we go to the mystical bits of the traditions, that's where they meet, that's where there's a place of harmony. and. Based on these three dynamics that I'm exploring, I I worry a little bit about an emphasis on the quote unquote mystical. um, It might contribute to religious harmony in the face of divisions and conflicts, but I also think there's a bit of an intellectual shortcut that happens there because appealing to the mystical can obscure significant particularities and also neglect the fruitful discussion of those particularities. So it, it, and I also notice that that very category, the mystical, is something that's been constructed over time. It has a particular genealogy within Christian theology that, interestingly enough, has functioned to privatize religion and also sometimes to exclude certain um, groups from authority. Right? If the women figures are mystics, there they can be kind of put off to the side. But the you know people who really say true things and write doctrine are are tend to be men in in that Christian genealogy. Um, That same sort of marginalization happens in the application of the mystical to the mystic East, right? Um, Where that is the shadow side of modern Western constructions of rationality. It's a kind of also place where Orientalist fantasies play out. So um, uh, that's one of the ways that I think having these dynamics of balancing out how we use language, the one and the many, the roles of narratives um, can help us bring some particularity and not obscure those through appeals to the mystical.
1: Fascinating. Chad, do you want to tell us about your contribution?
0: Sure. And, you know, I'd, I'd like also to mention that I think one of the really wonderful things about Michelle's chapter is that it is a it is an excellent introduction to an overview of the essays in that comparative theology section. And like she said, when you when you're the editor you get to read all the other all the other chapters and it's and it's useful to be able to think about well what's missing and what can I fill in the gap and her essay does that really wonderfully for our volume my my chapter was a little bit more uh narrow in its focus one of the one of the concerns we had as we were developing the volume was that there just aren't a lot of skeptics of Hindu Christian dialogue and Hindu Christian Engagement in the academy, uh, so we knew that there was going to be a bit of a kind of pro-engagement and a, a pro-interaction, a pro-dialog um, bias in in the volume. And you know, to to engage in something called Hindu-Christian studies in some ways implies that you think there's some utility uh, in that engagement. So one of the things we wanted to try to do as much as possible was highlight uh, people who were skeptical of engaging with each other. And particularly because this is where we felt like we really didn't have a lot of coverage, Hindus who were skeptical of the interactions with Christians or who were a little concerned about the intentions of Christians, particularly particularly Christian missionaries, and obviously also Christian colonial figures from previous historical era. Um, So um, my chapter is, of a kind of duet of chapters the first one is written by richard fox young and it looks at hindu christian debates in the 18th and 19th centuries and really highlights the work of some really fantastic hindu thinkers who tried uh, to critique christianity uh, both from their own perspective and on christianity's home territory so to speak and did so quite well my chapter then picks up the baton at the turn of the century. And we kind of skip over Vivek Ananda because uh, Robin Reinhardt uh, gave us a wonderful chapter on him. So I started uh, with the people who are kind of considered the fathers of Hindutva, Vidi uh, Savarkar and Emma Golwalkar, And then I trace a critique of Christianity in its various forms, but also through some of its commonalities from Savarkar and Golwalkar um, up to the present day through people like Gandhi, uh, Sita Ram Goel, Ram Swarup, Arun Shaori, Rajan. And then I also bring that conversation into the United States at the end of the essay, looking at the Hindu American Foundation and uh, Rajiv Malhotra. And all of these figures had a pretty strong critique, or still have a pretty strong critique of Christianity, a deep skepticism of missionary work in particular. and what I tried to show is that despite all their differences, and there are significant differences, there is a common thread that runs through them. There's, uh, And the thread um, goes something like this. Uh, Christianity is a, a, quote unquote, foreign religion in India, um, which is a religion that functions in quite a different way than Sanatana Dharma or Hindu Dharma, we might say. Even, you know even to the extent that we wonder whether we should use the word religion when we're talking about India's uh, India's uh, traditions like what we call Hinduism and Buddhism and Jainism and all the rest. it's uh, Christianity is a different kind of religion from the perspective of these figures. Um, it's a religion which is more like politics than like religion uh, because of its emphasis on growth, at least in certain quarters. Um, and that uh, that uh, putatively obsessive, um, focus on growth leads Christians to turn away from what is the heart of true religion, which is the search for spiritual transformation, and towards something more uh, like the political game of trying to gain more people to your side. And and as I argue in the essay as well, to some extent, this is an argument about the definition of religion itself. Uh, many of these thinkers say. And and Gandhi perhaps said it most clearly uh, among the early figures. Uh, Religion is and should be something that's about internal spiritual transformation. That's a transformation that can happen in any religious tradition. But it's probably easiest to achieve that transformation in the tradition in which you were raised, uh, because that tradition is tied to the culture in which you are raised. And it simplifies things for you. Um, To... uh, to go as some Christians do and try to convert somebody away from their ancestral tradition and to Christianity is unnecessary and superfluous uh, because you don't need to switch transition, uh, switch traditions to achieve spiritual transformation. Uh, You can remain within your own. And so uh, Christianity uh, appears to these figures as a kind of rude and obnoxious religious tradition that doesn't quite get the point of religion at all, uh, which is this internal spiritual transformation which can take place in any context. And because of that, a lot of the work that Christians do to uh, to convert others, proselytization, evangelism, et cetera, is, is seen as something kind of cynical, something more political than religious, something about control and and ruling the world and doesn't really have anything to do with true
1: religion. That is fascinating. Um, there's so much that comes to mind that I will not share at this moment because that would be a podcast of itself. utterly fascinating. Um, why don't you tell us what uh, uh, the great uh, Vasudha Narayanan says or responds? She's one of the respondents. You know, I had the good pleasure of, um, of uh, we've corresponded over the years since, but I had the good pleasure of meeting her when I was a grad student at the University of Calgary. She came out to do a talk, some, some uh, keynote. And uh, we ended up taking an afternoon or the better part of a day and a couple of us, we grad students, and we took her to um, Lake Louise in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, it just imprinted in the back of my mind as something, um, uh, as an experience, right? Yeah, taking Vasu to the mountains. Anyhow, <laughs> uh, what does she have to say about uh, the contributions, to this volume? So I'm so glad that uh, and
2: Ryan. Um, contributed to this uh, volume by responding to it because she uh, she draws attention to some of the some of the themes of the volume obviously but then also some of the places where um, the nature of a volume like this and the kind of scholars that contribute to it um, means that uh, that that we it needs to be supplemented by other perspectives that are I guess you would say very much on the ground. So she uh, observes that there is only one essay in the, um, in the volume, and that's by Patrick Beldio on uh, the aesthetic dimension of these, of the encounter between these traditions. And he focuses largely on visual arts. Um, she draws attention to music and dance and some very interesting case studies about um, how when uh, religious themes are treated, how sometimes that's a, a shared space where there's a lot of fluidity and other places there can be uh, protest because, um, because of uh, perceived appropriation and in uh, the artistic sphere uh, provides a, a very interesting um, and, and place where sometimes the work is actually non-discursive and can provoke deep Um, responses. She also, uh, in terms of the on the ground responses, she draws on social media and other kinds of conversations within Hindu communities, where Hindus are um, responding to contemporary uh, conditions in India related to like the lack of a uniform civil code and perceptions of inequality in the government's treatment of Hindu institutions relative to other inst- uh, religious traditions. So she, she's drawing on a lot of um, the things that are a little more slippery for uh, scholars to capture or even to, to, to recognize in terms of their methodology. What would you add, Chad?
0: Well, I, you know, I think that you covered it well. Um, I think that um, the thing that i I you know both of our both of our respondents did so well in pointing out some of the limitations of the volume. And I think her focus on aesthetics was one. And that was one which I feel we maybe was a bit more of a blind spot to us that we didn't think about until she pointed it out. There are some of there are some weaknesses that both she and Frank Clooney mentioned that we were aware of from the moment we started. And we're simply not able to overcome. And it might be useful for me to talk a little bit about, about some of those things that they raised. Um, they, you know, they both raised the issue of the representation. So we've already mentioned earlier in the, in, in the interview here that uh, while we have some Hindus, some Christian and some agnostic atheists uh, and uh, authors and some authors who adhere to other religious traditions the, uh, at least a plurality of of authors uh, would be Christian, or at least would have been raised in Christian tradition. And that represents a certain kind of uh, bias into a volume like this. And and of course, it just exacerbates the bias that's already there within the study of religion generally, that it is a field that emerged in a largely Christian Western context, and unwittingly often and uh, unself consciously often picked up certain Christian prejudices as it developed as a field, the study of religion. So I think they both did a good job of pointing out those things. Um, the, uh, they also you know, noted that our list of significant figures uh, is entirely male, which is, a, which is problematic. And we had considered including some other figures, some other female figures in that list of significant um, in that list of significant figures that we focus on in the middle of the volume. Um, but we we weren't certain that the scholarship was there quite yet to support that. I do think that it's emerging and quite strongly in the last few years, and that whenever this volume is updated, if it's by us or somebody else, that there will be within a few years, plenty of scholarship to actually increase that list to be a little bit more diverse. Um, they Maybe one of the most interesting critiques that they offered, and I think this came from Frank more than Vasu, was this this missing conservative voice. We talked about it just a moment ago with regard to uh, Hindu voices that might be skeptical about Hindu-Christian engagement for for various reasons. But um, Frank also mentioned the issue of missing conservative Christian voices. We don't really uh, have represented in the volume uh, people writing from, say, a very conservative Christian perspective who might say there's absolutely no reason for dialogue or any significant engagement with Hinduism as a religion because it's, say, false and or idolatry or of the devil or something like that. We simply don't have those voices. And it's, again, a, a reflection of the academic bias, which is, as we talked about before, a little, I think, a little bit prejudiced towards uh, engagement, towards interaction.
2: One more thing that I would draw out from Frank Clooney's response is he he reflects on how he entered the field um, and some of the books that were shaping his imagination as a Catholic scholar, engaging Hindu traditions and and where we've come from then. And he notes that when he began his graduate studies, there was a strong shift away from um, theology and, um, textual study. Um, well, he, the shift was towards, um, towards treating, uh, Hindu texts as literature and, uh, a bracketing of theology. And he, one of the things that he notices and that we have, um, that, that this volume really exemplifies is that you don't have to choose, uh, the methods and the perspectives from the different disciplinary approaches inform one another. And it's richer because the theologians are paying attention to culture and ethnography and the, uh, the historians are recognizing the importance of theological views. And it, it's a very rich conversation. And you don't have to um, you don't have to choose between disciplines and in, in uh in a field like
1: Hindu-Christian relations. Is there anything else about the handbook that you wanted us to touch on?
0: I could mention one or two things. I think one of the things I'm proudest about with this handbook is the fact that it includes a good bit of reflection on the field of Hindu studies itself. Uh, The first section we have on theoretical and methodological considerations which has chapters from Kerry Santirico, Hugh Nicholson, Martin Canary, and Stephanie Corigliano. Um, each of those chapters thinks really critically about Hindu-Christian studies. And right from the first essay, Cary uh, Santirico, um, his essay has us thinking critically about the very categories of Hindu and Christian. And he essentially argues that these categories, like all of those categories, emerge discursively um, and are sort of mutu- mutually constitutive and that's a really important warning to lay down at the beginning of a volume like this uh, because on the one hand you can't get you can't talk about Hindu Christian studies without using the terms Hindu and Christian it's almost impossible but on the other you need to recognize and anybody reading the volume and uh, reading the volume ought to recognize that these are constructed terms, so I'm. I was really pleased to see that this is a field which has really expanded in the last two decades. it has been a real efflorescence um, and a real broadening of the field. And on the history and ethnography side, that's through the excellent work of people like the late Salva Raj, who, who deserves mention here, as well. As some people uh, like Corinne Dempsey and Eliza Kent, who contributed to the volume, um, who who really established um, this kind of new side, this historical and anthropological side of the field. Um, so the, the field has really matured, but what I would say is that it has not, uh, up until very recently, been terribly self-critical. And I think it's now mature enough that it can be self-critical. And so I'm, I'm quite pleased that we had those really excellent uh, essays by the authors I, I just mentioned.
1: Michelle, was there something you wanted to add about the handbook?
2: Yes. Uh, in addition to that important intervention uh, around the meanings of the terms Hindu and Christian, I, that, that's really a theme that cuts across the various essays in the volume. I would also want to add that people who are interested in intersectional considerations of caste, race, nationality, and gender, for understanding religious identities and interreligious relations'll we'll find this a very helpful volume I feel like this is some of the most up-to-date scholarship in terms of how um, you know not not treating these different things in isolation from one another but in a very intersectional way so there are many issues of the construction of identities and relationships here and that attention to how power works in all of that that's a, that's an a theme in the volume, and it's very much also related to the enduring legacy of the colonial encounter. So those are things that really do cut across the entire volume, which just scanning the six section titles might not exactly tell you that, but uh, when you dig into the essays, it's incredibly rich.
0: Yeah, and I'll, I, the last thing Michelle said I think is really important. In addition to doing well on critique of the field and doing well on uh, thinking about Hindu-Christian relations in an intersectional way. Michelle briefly mentioned colonialism there. Another thing I think, uh, one of the things I perhaps learned the most from reading these essays was the complicated legacy of colonialism. You, you simply, and, and our authors in our historical sections, so this is Sonia Thomas, Frank Cloney, Jason Keith Fernandez, Arun Jones, Penelope Carson, and uh, Richard Fox Young and me, um, those authors presented colonialism as a as a very complicated affair. So you can't disentangle Hindu Christian relations from colonialism. It's part of the legacy. It's the context in which uh, the earliest forms of really intense Hindu Christian interacting happened. Uh, that colonial legacy tinctures the relations of Hindus and Christians even today. It's part of what. Drives the suspicion of some Hindus um, about the intentions of Christians interacting with Hindus, you, you, you can't get away from that. So there's a sense in which colonialism is, and the sort of unequal power structures that, that it introduced are, have always been part of Hindu-Christian relations. On the other hand, our authors show these really interesting ways in, in which sometimes and in certain contexts The usual hierarchies of European colonizer and Indian colonized, or just Christian and Hindu, get inverted Uh, from some figures like Gandhi, who managed to know both religions well and still critique and push back against Christianity, um, through uh, certain kinds of ritual interactions where the distinctions are blurred, to these really kind of complicated post colonial moments, Um, for example. Uh, that uh, Robeson points out in, our, in her chapter, where you have the potential for there to be Indian Christians in the United States interacting with Caucasian Hindus of the ISKCON tradition. So these really sort of fascinating complications and inversions of the usual colonial hierarchies. So I think you know it's another thing I really feel good about this volume is the way that it speaks of colonialism in complicated terms both as an enduring legacy and a legacy that was frequently inverted or undermined.
1: It really is a far-reaching volume, very much so. Now that you've made mention of uh, the contributors of the first two sections, Michelle, shall we make mention of the contributors of the subsequent sections?
2: Absolutely. Um, So the third section on contemporary exchanges, um, Ian Richards, on anti-conversion laws, Sundar John Bupalan on um, Hindu-Christian relations through the lens of caste. Shailaja Krishnamurthy has a wonderful essay on race and um, representation in Hindu-Christian encounters in North America. Um, Chad has mentioned, Claire Robeson on ISKCON, and uh, Pratap Kumar Panamala uh, writes about the diaspora, um, Hindu-Christian relations in Africa, the Caribbean and the Pacific, uh, and the Pacific. Um, it's interesting that several of the, the people in that group are, are writing uh, from Canada. And so if you're interested in that section, I've, I'm actually hosting a book launch um, at Emanuel College um, virtually in February, where several of those folks and other, uh, others who are writing from Canada um, will talk about their essays. Um, Chad, do you want to talk about the contributors from
0: the fourth part? Sure. Uh, The the fourth section on sites of bodily and material interactions is probably the section which has our uh, highest concentration of people working from an ethnographic perspective. And so the contributors in that section are James Benaya, Kristen Bloomer, Eliza Kent, Reed Lachlan, Patrick Beldio, and Christopher Miller. And I would say one of the really clear uh, cross-cutting themes among those authors is the way that in ritual, and in practice, and on the ground, and in local communities, in in India primarily they're talking about, but also to some extent in North America and elsewhere, these kind of hard divisions between Hindu and Christian break down. James Panaya from a a more ethnographic perspective and Reed Lachlan from a a more theological or we could say liturgical uh, perspective are both talking about the ways that in ritual practice, there's a lot of sharing that goes on, a ritual sharing. It's quite common for uh, Christians to engage in Hindu rituals and Hindus to engage in Christian rituals, especially around festivals, but also at shrines that are associated with healing. And uh, and 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 miracles, and so you know, uh, I think I find those kind of interactions really fascinating personally. So some of these essays were among my favorites. Kristen Bloomer's is a really fascinating essay in that it's one of the few that emerged uh, directly from primary research, uh, and it was a little bit less of an overview. But she was on the ground. Uh, when the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004 hit the southeastern coast of India and uh, observed the great death and destruction and suffering that it caused. And uh, while she spent a number of days just trying to help people respond to that disaster, she was also immediately thinking uh, like the ethnographer that she is, and was observing the ways in which that that untold suffering reconfigured the relations of Hindus and Christians and flattened differences between them, if only temporarily. So there's, these essays, I think, have that common thread among them um, that there's a lot of um, interaction at the ritual level. Of course, Christopher Miller's chapter is on yoga in North America, both in terms of shared ritual practice of so people who understand themselves as Christians adopting Tradition that many associate uh, with Indic religious traditions, yoga, but also, uh, of course, a site of contention among people, say, conservative Christians who think that Christians shouldn't engage in yoga because it's Hindu, or certain Hindus who feel that Christians shouldn't engage in yoga because it's a kind of cultural appropriation. So there's a lots of fascinating, complicated interactions. A lot of them positive, but some of them less positive going on that are reflected in that chapter, or sorry, in that
2: in that section, in that group of chapters. And I'll name the wonderful scholars who contributed essays on significant figures. Dermot Killingley wrote on Ramahan Roy, Robin Reinhardt on Swami Vivekananda, um, Bradley Clough on Gandhi, Eric Randstrom wrote a chapter on a very important figure, Raymond Panikkar, and Catherine Cornille contributed a chapter on Ananda. Um, and the the comparative theology section, I've already mentioned the essays um, by myself and Anantanand Rambachan. Uh, in addition, uh, we have topical uh, focus on creation, cosmos, and ecology by Daniel Scheid, uh, which brings us up to date with you know ways that these traditions are um, Uh, wrestle with their legacy for um, ecological concerns and also our resources for that. Um, Ankur Barua, he wrote on competing philosophies and theologies of the human person and um, draws draws some real distinctions between some of the formative uh, figures in the two traditions. John Paul Sidner writes on embodiment, divine embodiment in the two traditions and takes that in some really interesting directions related to gender and goddesses and and, uh, some constructive um, uh, thinking around um, avatars and and so forth. Uh, the, The question of how folks from each tradition make sense of Uh, the other tradition in terms of like, is this, is is that tradition true? Does it contain truth? Is it a helpful path? Um, Peniel Jezudas and Rufus Rajkumar um, has uh, an essay that that approaches that from some new kinds of angles. He breaks out of some of the typical Christian ways of formulating what uh, Christian theologians call um, theologies of religion to look at how especially um, Indian thinkers are framing. Um, these kinds of, um, reflections on, uh, the value of, of, uh, the, um, the other tradition or uh, that's, that's too stark because sometimes they're not related as, as other, right? There, there's sometimes very much more fluid relationships between those streams. Michael Amaladas has a chapter on enculturation in, um, particularly in the Indian context of of, of Christian, uh, forms of Christianity in the Indian context. Uh, Ted Ulrich has a a piece on um, peace and conflict, uh, which draws from both textual and some more uh, contemporary historical relations between um, Hindus and Christians. And then the final essay in that section is from Bob Robinson, which, again, comes back down to the ground in terms of contemporary Hindu-Christian dialogue.
1: Far-reaching indeed. Um, I want to thank you both for appearing on the podcast today and and sharing on this exciting new volume.
2: It was a real pleasure, Raj. Thank you for inviting us.
0: Yes, thanks for me as well. It's been a
1: pleasure. Likewise. Uh, For those of you listening, we have been speaking with uh, um, Chad Bauman of Butler University, and uh, Michelle Voss-Roberts of the University of Toronto uh, on um, a, a phenomenally rich new uh, volume, The Rutledge Handbook of Hindu-Christian Relations. Um, and actually, we have an upcoming um, interview on a Rutledge Handbook. Our next podcast will be on The Rutledge Handbook of South Asian Religions with uh, New Jacobson. So until next time, um, stay safe, uh, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating this thing called Indian religions. Take care.